On November 7th, I published a long-form proposal with supporting data and projections to make the case for privatizing Social Security titled Fellow Millennials, Let's Privatize Social Security. I purposely picked millennials for a number of reasons, many of which I'll highlight in about half a minute here, maybe a minute or so, and most of which I'll address throughout tonight's episode. One of the main reasons that I signaled out millennial, the millennial generation, though, is because this generation, for this generation, Social Security is more regressive than it has ever been, and it's only going to get worse. Yet millennials are blind. They hate private capital. They hate the idea of peeling government back even a single degree. And when a political party has that is claimed to be for free markets and less government, though the track record of Republicans lacks consistency with their proposed values, they call it fascism. Now, before you freak out, those of you on the left that have for some reason found your way onto an anarcho-capitalist podcast, I want to keep you here, so maybe I can convince you of something. The proposition that I wrote was to do so over a 50-year period. Okay, so I wasn't coming out of you know, coming out of right field and, and, and proposing something extremely radical. And it was also to ensure that those that have been promised and are now counting on it are provided with comparable benefits. And later in tonight's show, I'll discuss the practical reasons we should act on this proposal. But for the next few minutes, I want to discuss the immorality of the Social Security system. The Social, social Security is a scam. It's a Ponzi scheme through and through. The only way that Social Security survives is by having new investors put their money into a non-existent trust fund, which is actually a collateral slush fund for government to borrow against. And they have and, and do. And Social Security surpluses are simply invested in government bonds. That's convenient, right, for the government. The difference between Social Security and a private market fraudster is that if a private market fraudster pointed a gun at you, and, and you continue to invest in his fraudulent scheme as a result, the fraudster would end up in jail eventually both for fraud and for extortion and a whole bunch of other stuff. And with Social Security, if you just try to stand on principle and say, no, I'm not putting my money into a fraudulent scheme, the government points a gun at you and puts you, puts you in jail. It's just simply a difference in the legal status of the parties using force. But it's still a Ponzi scheme. Without continuous compulsory contributions to the system, the system would have already gone bust. And worse than that, it will eventually anyways if nothing's done. And this is where millennials come in. Millennials are at the tail end of a multi-generational decline in the labor force to retiree or Social Security contributor to Social Security beneficiary ratio. Social Security projected benefits increase faster than incomes are projected to. This means more taxes. And now we like to think, you know, we're helping the elderly. It's, you know, that's what we're told, that we're helping, the, you know, we don't want to leave grandma high and dry. But the, the majority, the majority, 51% or more of Social Security recipients would be totally fine if they no longer received their benefits. And in fact, there are a number of periods in recent history where a higher percentage of the income that individuals in the top 10% in terms of their household net worth, not even just based on their income, but their net worth, the top 
in some of those individuals actually in, in recent history, there have been years where they, they earned more from Social Security than they did uh, from, from private capital gains. So you've got these people who are amongst you know, the top 10% wealthiest people in one of the wealthiest countries in, in the world and toiling, hardworking youngsters who have student debt or maybe they couldn't even afford to go to college or didn't get into college. They've been working and trying to make it. Maybe have a, a, a new family that they're trying to raise. Just barely skirting by. And 15.3% of their income up until the point that they make $118,000 goes to the government. And, and then let's talk about that for a little bit. It's a regressive tax. It's a totally regressive tax. Up to $118,000 in income, whether you make uh, – Social Security, you don't, you don't get any exemptions from the so- Social Security taxes, from payroll taxes. Even if you make 1000 bucks a year, you're paying – $153 of it. If you make $10,000, you are paying $1,530. You're paying that 15.3%. I know they like to say that half of it comes from your employer. That's just a, a bunch of crock. It, it, it's, that is a lie. It's money that would otherwise be paid to you or would be passed on to consumers in, in, in terms of lower prices. And if you had 50, you know, if you had six and a half or 6.15% uh, being passed on con- to consumers through prices, it would net about the same thing throughout the entire economy. So you'd just be, you'd end up having that much more money one way or the other. But then once you make $118,000, every dollar above that is exempt. So it's a regressive tax that, that you know, and according to progressives, they, the reason they love the progressive income tax is because it taxes the rich and gets them to pay their fair share because they've done so well. And, you know, if it weren't for all of us toiling, working hard, you know, hardworking uh, middle class people, you know, you guys wouldn't be able to be where you're at. And we build help build the roads and blah, 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 blah. And the entire statist argument of why wealthy people should pay more in taxes. Well, the statist then turns around and says when it comes to people's retirement, if you make over a certain amount, all the money you make above a certain amount is, is exempt from it. And no matter how little you make, you're still paying into it. So the first thing you know, that I call for in this proposal, um, you know, and, and before, I, before I get to the proposal, actually, I want to add something else. That you know, <laughs> a lot of the people that are, on, that are receiving Social Security benefits at this point, worked during a period where they received a guaranteed pension and are now benefiting from that guaranteed pension, where 401ks became more and more popular. Uh, Yes, there are some people because of frauds that occurred at their, uh, at the job that they worked at. Sorry about my dog in the background. And because of some, because of a fraud that that occurred at, at, you know, maybe they lost the retirement if they they had taken, you know, the retirement contributions that people had made and invested it all in the company's stock. I think that kind of happened with Enron and Qualcomm, or not Qualcomm, Worldcom back in the day. Yeah. And, you know, then Social Security kind of steps in and, and is all, you know, it's all they have and, and they really absolutely need it. But there's a lot of people out there that, as I demonstrated earlier, are in the top 
top 20%, top 30% in terms of income earners on an annual basis without accounting for their Social Security. They'd still be in that top 30%. And they need to be surtaxed. Uh, they need to be surtaxed because if, if you're wealthy, you know, I, I know it sucks that you had this money taken from you, but, you know, you're much closer to, uh, you know, and possibly being of the age of where you voted for this bullshit, this absolute socialist it, it, Ponzi scheme bullshit. And my generation is not. And I'm not willing to toil 12, 14 hours a day to have over one seventh of my income go to affluent retirees. And I don't want to have a single penny of my income going to the, the well-off elderly folks. I'm sorry, but they, they, they're well off already. And I'm struggling to get ahead. And there's a lot of young people out there that are doing the same. And 15.3% of their income is going to wealthy retirees. You know, there's another chart they'll probably end up putting on the, the uh, tonight show note, uh, tonight show page and the episode page on, on, on our blog. And it's a chart that shows income gains based on, on age. And the, the fastest growing uh, demographic in terms of their, their, the income they receive, uh, you know, based on, break, it's broken down by, I think, you know, nine years and it's 65 plus. The 65 plus has seen massive gains in income, uh, you know, in real income. Well, basically everybody else, you know, some of the older, I think 45 to 55 and 55 to 65 have seen some, some more growth relative to the rest. I'll put that chart up. Everybody can see it, but you know, wealthy people are making out like ban- elderly people are making out like bandits. And even if they're wealthy, they still continue really wealthy and have plenty of retirement. They still continue to get their social security checks. And the system is insolvent. And we're continuing to pay into it. And for those of you out there that make less than the median household income, you should be pissed off too. And we're talking about there's some guy or, or you know, lady with 10 million bucks sitting in a tax-free interest-bearing municipal bond fund clipping a couple hundred grand in tax-free uh you know tax-free income every year and a piece of your check is going to them while they sip coladas at some you know cuban cafe in in aventura you know and some of these guys you know play sugar daddy to, to some young, you know, Venezuelan girl who's, you know, here in America going to school, you know, somewhere in South Florida. And they're doing that with your Social Security contributions. I'm your host, folks, Andrew Smith. This is the Macro View. All right, we've got another great episode for you tonight. Finally got around to getting uh, enough of my thoughts on this subject, uh, which, which really, if, if I go on forever, is probably enough to fill a book. And you know, take them all and, and cram them down into a 20 to 30 minute segment, and and still at least be somewhat satisfied with it. And I, I think I've you know taken put down all the main points that I want to get across. And don't get me wrong, you know there there are definitely people out there that do rely on Social Security, of course. And in large part, the reason they rely on Social Security is because that they they were told that they could. Not only that they were, were they told that they could, but they were told that they should. And initially, you know, 
this, this is not how Social Security was pitched, the way that it's set up now. Initially, Social Security was pitched for about the first two decades as an insurance. It's just like, you know, it's like any other insurance. You know, essentially, it's just in case you didn't have money to retire. And, um, you know, the payroll taxes back then, they were actually even referred to as premiums. I don't want to digress too far, but the Supreme Court did essentially, I can't remember exactly when it is, but I'll find it. I'll put it on the, I'll update the uh, tonight's episode uh, page on, on the blog. But the Supreme Court basically did the same thing that Justice John Roberts did with Obamacare, where they just called it, um, they called it, you know, a tax so that they could deem it constitutional. I can't remember exactly what the case was, um, but I do, I, I did want to bring that up. The, back then, it, they were actually, Social Security contributions were referred to as premiums. You were paying a premium. An assumption when they came out with the, the, the system was that most people would just generally work until they die. And because people died at 55 to 60, maybe 61, 62 you know, and, and some people lived into their 70s. You know, it wasn't very common for somebody to live very long, that long back then. And, you know, you also had a bunch of people that had, that had come back from the World War II. And, you know, you had a bunch of, you had really high productivity at the time. Up until about the 50s, you know, first of all, they're pitched as premiums. And second of all, they're only about 2% payroll tax. And I'll talk about it a little bit more later, but... They pitched this as an insurance scheme, and and all of that was a lie. It wasn't insurance. It was not an insurance scheme. You know, they were not paying premiums. People were not paying premiums. You know, there were taxes, and the taxes actually in that Supreme Court uh, case ruling, which which I'll link to, had nothing to do with the benefits that were to be paid later. They're they're two totally separate things. Other than both are based off of a percentage of the the you know sort of the percentage of the average annual income that you earn throughout your working life, and there were rules that required you to work ten years or so. So the poor elderly, you know, the, the very poor elderly that didn't work or maybe they just had kind of a self self sustainable farm and then a husband died, you know that the the real real really poor elderly and including some of the you know people that came here later in their life trying to escape ty- tyranny from wherever they came from and individuals that are of disenfranchised groups that were systemically oppressed for decades. You know, a lot of them are left out of the beneficiary roles. They don't get any. And some other aspects of social security that have had to be adjusted, um, you know, have, have had to be adjusted because, you know, the system just kind of sucks and it doesn't work. Um, that, that includes the fact that originally, you know, they didn't charge the government didn't charge any payroll tax on the self-employed. Kind of figured, well, if you're smart enough to run your own business, you can figure out how to save for your own retirement. And originally, the payroll tax was only two percent. Remember, you know, it's, they say one percent comes out of your paycheck, one comes from your employer, which is really it both two you know, percent comes out of your paycheck. But it was only two percent. Today, it's 15.3%. And it all changed. You know? And that, that was back when the, four to, the, the contributor to beneficiary ratio was, was 
four to one. In 1950, they had to start increasing, and and ever since then, the rates increased. They went up to 3%. I think three years later, they went up to 4%. A couple years later, they went up to 5%. You know, raising the rate again, if we don't move towards a private system, is inevitable. Otherwise, it's not going to maintain its solvency. You see, a big part of the problem is, is that if you tell people, don't worry, there's a safety net, they're more likely to need to use it. And it's called moral hazard. This is a you know, well-known uh, behavior patterns that play out when you, have, when you have certain incentives in place. It's been studied for you know, at least five or six generations, if not longer than that. You can go all the way back you know, to some of the earliest writings in capitalism, and they discuss some of these same, the same you know, agency issues – and uh, all, all of that. So you know, the, I'm not going to get into it too deep, but when you, when you place a safety net underneath somebody, they, they kind of feel like, okay, well, I can take a lot more risk, risk that otherwise they probably wouldn't take. And you know, essentially there's a higher likelihood that they end up needing the safety net. Just like you're more likely to, try, to attempt to walk across a hang wire, you know, if you know you have a safety net beneath you, most people would never dare do it without, without one or without a safety harness. But it has some really adverse effects. And one of those was that savings rates got hammered and have continued to and reached all-time lows not too long ago. They peaked up a little bit, but they're not great. And most people under the age of 45 currently already, according to a lot of polling, believe that they're paying into a system – that will not exist by the time they reach the age to receive it and that they just won't get anything. And they're probably right. But if you're 45 and you got your first job at the age of 15, you've been paying in for up, for up to 30 years possibly. Even if they don't believe that they're going to get, going to get it, they're going to fight for it, they're going to vote for it. Millennials, however, are young enough to take the stand and to just say enough theft. And millennials have plenty of time to save privately. And we do not have to lack empathy. We do not have to cut future Social Security beneficiaries off completely in the event that something bad happens. Although that would my preferred solution, you know, based on the way based on my worldview, is that not having a safety net at all would actually be better and people would generally take less risk and you wouldn't have as much volatility in economic uh, you know, economic values and asset values, and you wouldn't have the boom-bust cycle that, that's as violent as it is today if people took a long-term, smart approach towards saving for retirement and purchase, purchasing things like longevity insurance or uh, you know, beginning at an early age and paying into an annuity that, they, that they'll receive uh, you know, when they reach a certain age later in the future, doing that on their own. People would do that, and you'd have less volatility. People would take less risk later on in their lives. Uh, there'd be a lot of benefits of that. I think you'd end up with less asset bubbles, and you, you'd end up and you com- couple that with some of the Austrian other other Austrian thoughts on uh, you know the Aust- Austrian business cycle theory, and you know a lot of it starts to to come in and make sense as why this would be a much preferred system that would actually be much better in a lot of ways. Um, but be- before you know, before we get into some of the numbers and, and, and actually how it ends up working out, 
I want to actually go through some of the bullet, you know, bullet point by bullet point, um, you know, some of the things that I, that I think are the most important parts of the pitch. So what I propose is that any social security beneficiary that finds their way into the top 30% of income earners in retirement, um, that they have their social security benefits surtax such that they will earn no social security benefits that put their income above the lower bound of the 70th percentile of the, of the income distribution. Um, so essentially, you know, if somebody makes, I don't, I don't have the numbers of what the 70th percentile is in front of me right now, uh, but I have it in the, uh, in, in the, in the actual report and the proposal. And basically if, if they reach that, the lower bound of the, the 70th percentile, then they'll no longer receive any social security benefits, or if they've received any up to that point, then they'll be surtaxed back throughout the rest of the year. And I, I then also propose that existing beneficiaries, existing beneficiaries, this is how we phase out of it and get a huge chunk of the liabilities off the balance sheet over the next five years, that they receive an annual lump sum that provide them with about $30,000 in current year disposable income and then each, and then a chunk of that money, a chunk of that money um, would then be used to purchase an annuity each year that would start paying them from in five years from basically the date of implementation. So they would buy, you know, an annuity that's due five years out, an annuity that's due four years out, an annuity that's due three years out, two and one each each year and then basically like say that they're 65 and they just got into social security by the age of 70, they have these five lifetime annuities that pay them more than more than enough to be very, very well off. It's actually, you know, based on at current lifetime low interest rates, it would still be enough to make more than every single retiree more than what the uh, maximum social security benefit actually is currently. So, and I, I believe, so I've got the, the, in the report, I actually detail exactly what the difference between those numbers are. So you, and then basically for people that are age 64 to 45, upon reaching age 65, they receive an inflation adjusted lump sum that must be used to purchase a lifetime annuity. That's it. And, and that lump sum, it's inflation adjusted, and, and it ends up be working out to where it's, it'll buy about in real dollars about the same annuity, um, you know, inflation adjusted that the earlier uh, retirees, you know, five annuities add up to, but they'll just be buying one at the age of 65. For people that are aged 44 to 16, they receive a prorated inflation-adjusted lump sum uh, to purchase an annuity at the age of six, uh, at the age of 65. And the way that I base that is that, so I, I assume that, that you start essentially start working when you're 15 is when you're eligible to get your first job. I think um, I don't know, maybe it's different in different states, but basically I put it as at the age of 15, you know, which I think is, you know, at least when I got my first job, 
uh, you would start paying in, you know, you, you, you wouldn't start paying in, but you would, you'd start being prorated against the number of years that you're, that you've already worked at the time this is implemented. So somebody who's 44, they'll get the prorated lump sum for the, um, for the period that they've already worked. And then going forward, they'll be expected for the next period of, of 20 years or so until they retire to be uh, – they'll, they'll, they'll be required to, to do it on their own, to save on their own and invest on their own and save up for retirement or purchase a, an annuity and whatever they, they see fit uh, with about 10% of their income. So even a lower percentage, but they'll be, they'll, they will have to put some aside. And then, you know, so if you're, if you're 44, you're getting, you know, you're going to get 35 years worth of what inflation adjusted worth, what, whatever it is that the, um, you know, the the current retirees are getting, which is, you know, from 15 to 65. So it's just a prorated amount based on that scale of when people are eligible to start working and, and when they're eligible to receive current social security benefits. Um, so, and if you check the blog post I referenced with the full proposal, you'll see a graphic representation of the current system and the projections compared to my, to, compared to my proposal. And you'll notice while total social security spending increases over the next five years slightly, it then drops off tremendously, never to even reach half of what it is again, it is today, again, even in infl- inflation adjusted dollar terms. And measured as a percentage of federal tax revenue, projections have Social Security spending uh, projected to reach 100% of, uh, of, of federal tax revenue in about 30 years out if we do nothing. And when you combine that with the national debt service payments, I think it's about a decade out. And according to, that's according to the CBO, which is known for, for underestimating spending and overestimating tax revenues. Under my proposal, there would be, uh, there, there would be a short-term you know, five-year increase in the percentage of tax revenue measure, and then after the fifth year, the existing Social Security plan still eats up um, – well the, well, the current Social Security plan eats up about 70% of the, the total revenue. My proposal would be – eating up about 10% of the total federal revenue and never again gets close to the absurd irresponsibility that is today, you know, that today's system, you know, somehow excuses and justifies. Um, so if you may be wondering about, you know, a couple of things that, that, that you could be thinking is, is are wrong with this system. What about people that don't, uh, you know, in the future, they don't save for their retirement. And now without social security, they have absolutely nothing to rely on. So, first of all, I think that's a straw man because it's in, in my proposal, it, you know, I do not say that we should eliminate compulsory savings in this proposal. And although I would personally prefer that, I don't think it's realistic. Um, it, it's sad. I think that most people do have the arrogant self-righteousness to say, well, yeah, of course I would, but most people wouldn't. But then everybody says that. And then they vote that way. So the truth is, yeah, most people say, yeah, I would. Of course I would do that. And of course most people would do that. But most people think that they're somehow greater than everybody else and, and that they're the ones that are enlightened that would do that. And nobody else would do it and it would just be a disaster and old people would be starving. 
And it, it, I, I think that that's a total straw man. But I don't even I don't even propose that. I actually propose that we we privatize it and we bring it down to about ten percent. And in my proposal, people that are under the age forty of uh, forty five right now begin paying that ten percent into that system immediately. And the their annuity, the prorated annuity, is just funded off of the rest of the existing tax revenue, and and the the social security tax gets phased out after, um, believe it's after five years, or, or excuse me, it goes down to, to 5.3% for, I believe, about a decade, and then it's just funded in my proposal. So, yeah, it, it, it's not, that's, that's a straw man. Don't, don't bring up, oh, I, I'm proposing that people do still have compulsory savings, because I think that politically, that's the practical way to get it through. Um, so there's, there's another there's another straw man that, that statists are going to try to, to raise against this argument. And that is that, you know, some of them will just take issue with private markets altogether. And they're going to say, well, what about people that make poor investment decisions and end up losing everything? Again, it's a total straw man. And there'll be all sorts of ultra safe, low risk options for those people that are scared of that. And for some, you know, for some, the risky options early on when younger, when they have a chance to pay off big over a long time horizon, you may find their way into some portfolios, but most people with 401ks, you know, they have really diversified 401k portfolios. They have a 401k advisor. It probably looks something more like that. And while subject to market volatility, absent the absolute, I mean, like literally the absolute worst market crash in the history of the world in which it takes 20 or 30 years to recover. And on, like on the same day, there's, there's national you know, nationwide earthquakes that rip apart all the factories and all the roads and destroy the entire infrastructure of the country. It's just not going to happen in risky markets, in risky co- markets, the corporate equity market, for example, you know, known to most people as the stock market, there's not a single 45-year period, and people from the age of 15 to, to 65, that's a 50-year period. I'm saying a 45-year period, and there's not, there's not a 50-year period either, where the S&P 500, which is the standard market benchmark for U.S. large-cap stocks, produced a negative return. And in fact, I demonstrate in my proposal that there is not a period in which the compound annual growth rate was less than 6.7% over a 45-year period since 1950. And going back, it hasn't happened at all, but, but just since the Social Security tax rate started getting ever-increasing and got to the point where it is now, where it's 15.3%, it's ridiculous. And people that paid 2 and 3% for most of their lives and, and made out like bandits. Yeah. They think it's wonderful. They paid two to 3% of their income each year. And you know, they're, they're getting for even, no matter how much money they're worth, they're getting a, a, a fat chunk, you know, up to 25 grand, something like that in that range uh, per person, you know, there's two, two working adults in, in the, in the household that worked their entire lives, both of them worked their entire lives, which was less common. Uh, but a number of them did. And it, it was less common, but there were women that worked and, and, and had husbands that worked. Even in the 50s and even in the 60s, folks, yeah, it existed. It, it, was, it was much rarer than it is today, but it did exist. 
But besides that, most people would just choose some diversification. And even though I prefer that ultimately, you know, those you know, truly worried about that could put some, you know, I just don't think that that's an issue. I mean, for, for people, I, I, I'd not, I would not prefer that there be requirements, but for people to worry about that, put a requirement, put a diversification requirement. It's still better than the scheme we have. So I just don't find that as a, a valid argument. There's, there's just not periods where your scenario of ultimate doom combined with a ripping apart. I mean, we're talking about financial assets where maybe there's some restructuring in, through a bankruptcy process. Maybe there's some new ownership that comes about and maybe some people do lose some money. But in a widely diversified portfolio, I mean, you're not going to see mass bankruptcy. You're going to see a, you might see a lot of bankruptcy and a really bad bust, which could happen. It could happen, you know, soon. But you're not going to see. You're, what you're not going to see is you're not going to see a ripping apart of the the hard infrastructure, the real assets that that exist out there. They don't just go poof. And a 45-year time horizon is more than long enough. And over, say, okay, well, oh, well, what if it happens the year this person is going to retire and the market collapses by 60%? Well, they probably experienced about a 300 or 400%, 300%, you know, 400% total return over the period. So they still ended up with a 180% total return. It was still not horrible. You know, it's actually much greater than that over 45-year time horizons. You're talking about when you compound it, and the, the you can get up into the thousand percent return. Uh, you know, total return. Um, ex compounding is is extremely powerful. In fact, the you know the minimum, the 1.067, you know, the, or the zero, the point six, the 6.7 percent over a 45-year period, 6.7 percent compound annual growth rate that. Uh, that the, the S&P 500, uh, that was the minimum observation since 1950. If, if you experienced that over a 45-year period, you're talking about 18 and a half times money. I mean, your compound, your, your total return on your initial investment over that period is about 18 and a half X. Not 180%, 18.5x. So if there's a 60% collapse, and your original dollar still earned a massive return, an 8, 8x return, it's just a straw man. It doesn't exist. I want to debunk that straw man because you know there's there are a lot of people even within you know that within the the Austrian school that are very gloom and doom. But of course they would understand that that so long as government stays out of it and allows asset values to find a bottom and for you know, the value of those assets to reach a point where, where people who want to purchase those assets step back in with their, their savings and their real money and their productivity and their credit worthiness and go and buy those assets and start bidding asset prices up again, that there needs to be a liquidation. There needs to be a liquidation of those assets and the bad debts need to be wiped out. The bad entrepreneurs with, that make bad judgment need to lose money and need to be wiped out and need to, you know, they need to experience that in order to a learn from it and grow from it 
and B, in order if you're an investor, so that you have better judgment as as to which entrepreneurs to pick. So it's a very important part of the cycle. But no Austrian economist who's you know gloom and doom over the current situation and the reinflation of the the, the asset bubble is going to go out there and say, well, when it busts, all of the real factors of production are just going to disappear. No, of course that's not. The real factors of production will fall back in line with a price that's relative to their actual productivity. That's what would happen. So yeah, I wanted to debunk that straw man, and, and there it is. Both of those, which are pretty much the two biggest object, objections that people won't save with themselves. Yeah, I didn't call for, for no compulsory savings, although I'd prefer that. I'd prefer people to have to make their, their own decisions and, and, and live with their own consequences. And if the, it, I do believe that other people would step up and, and that charity is unbelievable. I did an episode just last night debunking the straw man of you know, the Ebenezer Scrooge capitalist. So check that out. People would step up and take care of people. But if you're scared of that, my proposal calls for 10% compulsory savings. Right? So, and, and for the people that's fully privatized for in the future and for the people that, that um, for, you know, will get, receive the prorated lump sum age 44 and younger. And as far as people making bad decisions with that money or investing it, you know, in, in really risky assets and losing it all, just even in the, in the equity market, you know, even in the corporate equity market, the stock market, which is extremely risky, it is the risk market. I mean, it's the, that is the market where you go and take, you're taking risks on, on companies and their ability to profit in the future. It's the most, that and venture capital and private equity and all that, that those are the most, the equity markets are, are the risky markets. The bond markets are supposed to be safer. Because you get a guaranteed rate of return and you get a guarantee, you know, and, and you're first in line in the event of bankruptcy to get paid back to the creditor. But the equity market, it just doesn't exist. If everybody's forced to save over this period of time, they're going to average a really strong rate of return. And I did all of, I, I showed about what they would be able to save over the periods of time at different income levels. All that's in my proposal. So go and check it out. But I want to leave everybody with a final thought. And that final thought is just think about what could occur if instead of taking and, – and I, I also talk in my, my proposal about some of the economic power that people that complain about not having economic power today would achieve through this system by going to work and, and putting that 10% away. They would have a voice because there's you – know, they're, they're, 50% of the people, guess what, earn less than the median income. And not that they would own 50% of the assets, but they would own a significant chunk of the assets. And in corporate equity markets, you typically only have to have a 5% um, 5 group of owners, you know, owners that own 5% collectively to launch a proxy. So I do talk about economic, the economic power perspective and, and, you know, taking privately some of the economic power back from the corporatists and the statists. But I, I, from an Austrian school of economics standpoint, you know, those of you privy to the Austrian school of economics, you know, you know that the lifeblood of economic growth 
and of wage growth is private savings and and investment. And the Hayekian tri- triangle, as it's known today, you know, is 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 kind of the you know with the the uh, uh, possibilities uh, production possibilities curve, and the Hayekian tri- triangle displaying how there can be overconsumption and that you need a a healthy savings rate and that the healthy savings rate is what helps push consumption, total demand, aggregate demand up in the future, which is what the Keynesians try to try to push for is is higher aggregate demand. It's also what pushes wages up and he does a really good, uh, obviously Hayek and and a lot of other Austrians do a wonderful job of explaining just why that is. And, and, And it's very commonsensical and logical. And of of course it's why it is. I'm not going to get into all of the aspects of the Hayekian triangle tonight. And uh, I'll do, I'll do an episode on that one night and the the, uh, production possibilities curve and how savings actually is what grows the economy. Savings and investment is what grows the economy by, you know, investment in capital, you know, capital investment, increasing productivity of labor and increasing efficiency of operations, which leads to lower prices, which allows consumers to have more more money to spend on other things, which creates new aggregate, new demand for new goods, and all of the and increases standard of living and all of that. I'll do a whole episode on that at one point. But just following that logic of of, of you know sticking with me here, and if the Austrians are right on this, and savings and investment, not overconsumption, and aggregate demand. You have savings and investment are what lead to economic growth. Imagine the incredible innovation and the incredible pro- increases in productivity, the phenomenal economic growth, and the increase in wages, and the lower prices, and the higher standard of living that would come about from having an additional $2 trillion in today's monies at today's incomes – in savings and investment annually, it would be phenomenal. Capital would spread around everywhere. And you want to talk about being able to deliver capital to the, the most vulnerable, vulnerable members and the most disenfranchised, historically disenfranchised members of society. This is the, this is the way to do it. Have a lot more capital to go around and, and get spread out to, to new ideas. And allow private hands to do it. You know, I charted on my proposal, and you'll see this because I talk about this, and it's, I think it's from a practical standpoint, it's really important. I mean, this would be really good for economic growth. It would be phenomenal for economic growth. We'd have an additional $2 trillion in private investment. And the way that, that you know, the, the data collectors measure that this particular, particular stat is uh, gross private domestic investment. There's also the savings rate. But gross private domestic investment is what I'm more concerned about. And, you know, basically I, what I charted was both the mean wages, the, the GPDI, the mean wages and the labor force adjusted mean wages, which the labor force adjusted mean wages is basically accounting for where wages would be if the labor force, uh, you know, the size of the labor force had been held constant from 1974 to the present. Which is something that a lot of economists don't do, but you know, when if the labor the labor force has doubled in size, 
but total incomes have gone up even further. And if you held constant a constant labor force, it's not sure that that I'm not trying to make the claim that all those people would be would be as productive as they are and as competitive a, a, of. But essentially, you'd have bidding of wages that would go up even further by having additional people in the labor force. You know, a higher supply of labor is going to push down or put downward pressure on the price of labor, i.e. wages, and especially with all the regulations and the lack of opportunities that are out there, and, and the harder and harder it's become for certain industries to even start new businesses in this country. But I do that. I adjust you know, I held a labor force constant and mean wages and, and both mean wages and then labor force adjusted mean wages have gone up almost lockstep. The, the mean wages trail behind a little bit, but almost lockstep with the, the GPDI. Now the labor force adjusted wages are, are like lockstep with GPDI and you can check out that chart. So if you go to the blog post with the full proposal, which um, you can find, you know, if you, if you go to our, our, our blog website, macroviewnews.com slash the macroview, you go to the blog post with the full proposal, um, which you can find on tonight's uh, show page. If you're not watching tonight's episode from there already, uh, you'll see and, and, a remarkable correlation between these two numbers. And if you follow this, you know, the additional $2 trillion or more in annual private savings and investment will give a very, very much needed shot of adrenaline to the American economy. It'll create economic growth like we have not seen in decades. And finally, maybe this time with stable private savings, private savings and investment, not an expansion of credit, if government gets rid of its massive incentives for the misallocation of resources, maybe finally the economic growth could actually be sustainable. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed tonight's show. Don't forget to check out the related article for tonight's show. Um, the proposal for, you know, that I, that I referenced many times throughout tonight's show, it'd be very valuable for you to read it, you know, maybe come back and even listen to this again a second time. So you get a little bit more of an idea of what I'm actually talking about here hours not enough to, to, to do it justice um, but I, I did feel as though I, I you know, got across the main points to you all and and it make it should make a lot of sense for the specific numbers if you want to see the specific numbers of how it would work for each each you know, group or each age or if, if depending on how old you are you want to see how it, it would affect you just go check out the proposal uh, also don't forget to like us on Facebook don't forget to follow us on Twitter facebook.com slash the macro view and on twitter it's just at the macro view you know the the at sign the macro view all one word and if you're not listening to this from uh, the macroviewnews.com blog uh, where i have a dedicated blog post with an embedded audio feeder for each of our episodes tonight's actually our 15th episode even though it's titled 13 uh, there are two what i call pop-up episodes that i called episode 3.5 and episode 4.5 but all 15 episodes including tonight's can be found at macroviewnews.com slash the macroview and they each have a dedicated show page some of them have slideshows that go go along with them with charts uh some of them have some you know slideshows with quotes that go along with them uh and I, you know i'd love for everybody to get out there and share it with their family uh you know share it with their friends 
you know, help build the logic movement and, and expand the liberty movement. And comment on the blog post. I love audience feedback. If I get enough audience feedback, you know, I'd love to incorporate that into some of the shows. And also on macroviewnews.com, on the main page, there are a number of, you know, on, on the homepage, just macroviewnews.com, there are a number of the uh, you know, leading liberty-leaning news outlets that are aggregated in one location for, uh, you know, just for your convenience. It's actually also for my convenience uh, because it makes life a lot easier to catch up on, on the best, best news out there. You can kind of think of it as you know, your daily dose of truth in a world full of strawmen and fallacies. Uh, so check out macroviewnews.com and check out the blog, which you know, there's a link to on the homepage. Um, the blog is just, you know, it's also titled the macro view. Basically I've titled everything that I don't know why, but you know, I hope you guys enjoy the rest of your guys and gals enjoy the rest of your evening. And I hope you tune back in tomorrow night at 9:30 PM for episode 16, which for all my lo- Liberty lovers and, and those of you that are privy to the, the, the movement and the, some of the inside jokes of the movement, stay tuned. Episode 16 is a tribute to you guys. I think you're going to love the title and you're going to love the episode. So be on, be on the lookout for it tomorrow. And, you know, when the episode show page goes live on, on the blog, I typically put it out on Facebook and Twitter. Um, you know, and if you su- subscribe to our newsletter on the website, you'll get an email with it. But if you follow, like our page on, on Facebook or follow us on Twitter, you know, when I, when I update, you know, when I put the, today's episode up or when I put tomorrow's episode up, it goes out to the Twitter and the Facebook and you can uh, find, find links to it there. So try to do it every night at nine 30. Um, tonight's episode went a little bit longer because it is an episode that, you know, I've, I've got a lot to, a topic that I've got a lot to say about. And uh, sometimes my mind works that way where I, I just, I got to get a little bit more in so typically try to make it about 20 or 30 minutes, but I've got a number of episodes that are an hour and, or longer. Um, you know, if you f- give, give me some feedback, I'd love to hear topics that you guys would like to hear. And eventually I'd love to start having um, some guests on, which is something that I'm starting to work on. So we're hoping to line up some really good guests for everybody. Um, and you know, I just really hope you guys enjoy the show. I'm your host, Andrew Smith, and I am signing off until next time.